When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. It's Straight Out of Cobham, a show about Chelsea FC from The Athletic. Coming up on this episode, our house in the middle of our street, i.e. the Fulham Road or somewhere in Hillscourt. And the Premier League returns and Chelsea hope to avoid a slog on the time. We'll marvel at Lauren James and Sam Kerr and do a quiz. Available for free wherever you get your podcasts and ad-free on The Athletic. This is Straight out of Cobham. And we are back, possibly like Christopher and Kunku and a little bit delayed like Christopher and Kunku. Um, apologies, we're not with you at the time that we said we would. We're down to the bare bones, as Harry Redknapp might say. As you will see when I introduce my two guests today, it's me, Matt. I'm joined by the Athletics' Dominic Fifield. Morning, Dom. Good morning, Matthew. How are you? I can't smile wide enough. You know me. I've got the prospect of a six-hour round trip to Newcastle to look forward to. So that's going to be good fun. I'm hoping to see Chelsea win, as is Lucy Oliva. She's usually the producer. She's going to be a panellist on this one. How are you feeling about that, Lucy? I mean, desperate times call for desperate measures, Matt. So here we are. (laughs) I blame Simon and Liam and Luke for having the audacity to go on holiday. So, yeah. It's almost like Chelsea get an upturn of results and all of the people that are who are on this podcast decide to up sticks and leave overnight. It's very strange. Yeah, it'd be weird for Simon to be positive, I guess. Um, (laughs) But look, we're done with international breaks for 2023 until March, in fact. And I think we can all agree that that is good news after a pretty tepid fortnight of football. Uh, We will get to the Newcastle game later. A couple of other big things to touch on that happened while we were away, though. Liam and Simon have teamed up for a big read on Chelsea's stadium plans, whether to rebuild, stand by stand, demolish and rebuild or move to Earl's Court. Let's hear from Liam now. He can tell us more. So we decided, and by we, I of course mean Dom, the boss man, decided that the international break was a good moment for us to take a look at a big picture Chelsea issue and they don't come much bigger than what's happening with the stadium. And what we found was that nothing's really happening yet, which in itself I think is quite newsworthy. All of the options are still on the table for Todd Bowley and Clear Lake Capital. That means completely demolishing Stamford Bridge and rebuilding it. It means remodelling it stand by stand. And it also means looking at external sites and when we say external sites we really mean Earl's Court uh, as the only serious viable attractive site in London's crowded southwest corridor. Chelsea is still weighing up their options but it, it seems like the conversation inside the club has evolved over the past year. Originally it was Janet Marie Smith uh, who works for the LA Dodgers was brought in as a consultant and Jonathan Goldstein, member of the board, long-time Todd Bowley associate, they were kind of the, the front and centre faces of the stadium project team. Now, 
we're being told that Jason Gannon is the key figure who is driving the process, who will drive the process from here on in. He's the new chief operating officer at Chelsea. He was previously managed the SoFi Stadium, uh, which I know a lot of people in, in sport, and I think you can count Chelsea's owners among them, consider that to be, if not the best, one of the best modern stadiums in the world. So I think there's a lot of ambition there and they're thinking really hard about what to do. They want 60,000 seats, just as Abramovich did. That is clearly incredibly difficult to make happen at Stamford Bridge uh, for all the reasons that we've detailed in the past with the protected view over the top, the height restrictions, just how small the site is, 11.9 acres. They've added to that a little bit with the Oswald Stoll Mansions purchase but it's still much, much smaller than the Earl's Court site. And that's what's really tantalising, I think, and why Chelsea haven't ruled out the possibility of an external site, because Earl's Court is 40 acres. It's been largely derelict since 2014, when the old Earl's Court exhibition centre was knocked down. And there are development plans for it. The Earl's Court Development Company, which is really a property developer called Delancey in association with Transport for London are planning this massive uh, sort of urban regeneration development, 4,000 new homes, three new uh, entertainment cultural venues, 60% of the site remaining unbuilt, lots of green space, lots of uh, communal space. And they're looking to apply for planning permission next year, in the middle of next year, with a view to beginning phase one of their own construction in 2026. So Chelsea are insisting they won't be rushed into a decision on what they do with the stadium. But there is kind of external pressures on their time frame by, by virtue of what is happening with Earl's Court. Because once that site is gone, they really are just left with the Stamford Bridge options. And if they if they knock down and rebuild, it's going to look like five years away. And that's going to be a lot to ask of one of the oldest season ticket uh, holder fan bases in the, in the country. I think late 50s is the average age. It's going to be a lot to ask of the club financially. Remodelling would kind of limit the <laughs> capacity to well below 40,000, maybe for the next 10 years, it would probably take even longer than just building a whole new stadium. And of course, with a with a rebuild, you know, Chelsea would have to go elsewhere. The one thing we've been told quite clearly, Craven Cottage is not considered a viable option. They just think it's too small in terms of capacity, also in terms of you know, corporate amenities and everything like that. So Wembley is the clear front runner in that case. But it feels like Chelsea is still quite early stages of assessing all their options and if they want to be in a new stadium by 2030 whether that be at Stamford Bridge or Earl's Court they need to get moving soon so that's kind of the the gist of the piece that we wrote and it it looks like we won't get any really tangible update on Chelsea Stadium project until 2024 now. Uh, we had a couple of questions on this, which Liam can provide some answers to. Daniel says, Liam mentioned in his article today, the terms of the sale agreement included stadium redevelopment. If that did not go ahead, who are Chelsea accountable to and what would the ramifications be? 
It's an interesting question, and I think you're probably right to ask it because, in principle, the firm commitment to redevelop Chelsea Stadium, whether that be Stamford Bridge or elsewhere, was part of the sale agreement. So, in theory, you would say maybe Abramovich could hold them accountable or Rain. In practice, I would be surprised if either of them did, <laughs> given the situation that Abramovich is in. And I'd imagine Rain consider, you know, the process finished. So in practice, I'm not, I'm not sure if Chelsea's owners really could be held accountable if they decide to do nothing with the stadium. But I don't think that's a likely scenario at all. Uh, based on everything we've heard, I think they see giving Chelsea a bigger, more modern stadium as absolutely essential to their core aim, really, you know, as an investment fund, as a as a consortium of, of private equity guys, which is growing the value of the club. You know, there's only so much you can do with buying talented young players. And, and even if, you know, a large proportion of these guys hit and Chelsea end up with this amazing, really deep squad for years to come and win loads of trophies, the value of the club can only grow so much in the current Stamford Bridge in terms of what they can do with it, in terms of corporate, in terms of how many fans they can get in, how much money they can make out of those fans with everything else around a stadium. So I think it's probably unlikely that they could face ramifications if they decided to do nothing. But I don't think they're going to decide to do nothing. Sam said, is the stadium development even worth it? Will an extra 15,000 seats be worth the decades it would take to recoup the money? I can understand why you'd ask that, particularly when you read through our piece and it becomes clear just how much pain is involved in any of the options that Chelsea have to improve their stadium situation. It's a lot of time, it's a lot of expense. Whatever they do, whether it's buying Earl's Court or redeveloping Stamford Bridge, this is probably going to be a galactically expensive and complicated project. But the people running Chelsea are numbers guys, and they are absolutely convinced that they need a new stadium to boost revenue in the long term. And that is the key, I think. It's long term. You know, you're taking on all of this expense, and I'm sure there would be you know, like loans and external funding involved in any project of this size. You're taking all of that stuff on up front, but then in theory, the the revenue you get from it is forever. <laughs> you know, as long as Ch- Chelsea exist at their stadium and are playing football matches, you will be able to, to bank revenue, much increased revenue, because it's not just about 15, 20,000 extra seats. I think it's about what they can do with a significant increase in the numbers of corporate fans. And I know, you know, match going supporters hate to hear this stuff, but this is clearly a part of every modern stadium project uh, that I'm aware of. You want as many corporate amenities as possible, you want as many corporate bums on seats as possible because these guys come and they spend money. I remember in Abramovich's stadium plan, which was 60,000 seats at Stanford Bridge, 15,000 of those, a quarter of the stadium would have been corporate. 
So I think that's a big part of it as well. There are other possibilities. Maybe you can sell naming rights or sort of associated sponsorships around the ground in the stadium. I think there are just a lot a lot of possibilities that having a big new stadium opens up for growing revenue and growing the value of the club beyond just selling 15,000 to 20,000 extra tickets. And you can see as well the way that Tottenham and Arsenal's matchday revenue has grown hugely. You know, it's had such a big boost from moving from their old stadiums to their new ones. And both of them massively outstripped Chelsea in terms of match day. So the the question's probably not, you know, is it worth doing? Can they afford to do it? The question that is driving Chelsea's new owners is, can we afford not to? All right, Lucy, you are the out and proud Chelsea supporter on this podcast. What do you think? I'm kind of, personally, I'm minded to say, move to Will's Court just to avoid all the faff. But there again, you know, I do love Stamford Bridge. It's a tricky one, right? Yeah, I think it's really difficult. Obviously, we've seen a lot of Chelsea's rivals kind of go down different routes, whether it's Tottenham just making the most beautiful stadium that's ever existed, which makes it kind of harder. And then I guess the way that Liverpool are doing it in the way that they're slowly kind of making Anfield better and bigger and the new stands coming to life. I feel like I'm kind of conditioned to want to stay at Stamford Bridge just because it's Stamford Bridge. And I've been going there since I was a baby and it, it's it got such heritage and it's such an iconic place. But it isn't really fit for purpose anymore. It is too small. It is looking tired, I suppose, compared to some other stadiums. Not as bad as Old Trafford, obviously. Um, but yeah, I guess, again, buying the land around it, that surely insinuates that they have the intention to maybe do the whole bit by bit rebuild or go somewhere else for a couple of years, do a Spurs and then come back. I would like to stay at Stamford Bridge because just because it feels like home, but I'm kind of sentimental. So I can understand both sides of it. And obviously the article is, is fascinating and, and does provide balance for both sides. But I think ultimately making Stamford Bridge amazing and fit for purpose in this day and age would be better. Dom, there are many benefits to being a, a London-based club and, and Chelsea use those to their advantage. It's more attractive for players to come and play in London often than to go up to the northwest. But the planning thing is the real issue here in terms of building up, right? You can't just, you know, in, in theory, well, let's just add another tier onto the east stand and the west stand, but then you're interrupting the London skyline and it all gets a bit complicated and you can't really do that. It's, there's no easy solution. No, there isn't. And every every solution that's that will be put forward will be incredibly expensive as well. The skyline thing is interesting. We wrote about that during the sanction period when we were looking at what might prospective new owners at Chelsea might want to do with Stamford Bridge. And uh, that all goes back to King Henry VIII's mound over in distant Richmond Park, um, which is linked in, in, in Liam and Simon's piece. They could go down potentially, but again, hugely, hugely expensive. And realistically, if if you are going to do that and basically redevelop Stamford Bridge on its current site in one go, say, so, i.e. flatten it all and start again from scratch, then you're probably playing at Wembley for at least five years, which I think a lot of fans will just, well, they will find that quite a daunting prospect. They don't have the space, you know. We can we can mention Anfield going stand by stand. There are other clubs that intend to develop, you know, one stand of their ground or two stands of their grounds, but they tend to have a bit more space to play with. That there simply isn't that at, at, on the Stamford Bridge footprint. So 
that complicates matters too. And the, the sole buildings that, that, that they purchased um, earlier this year, they would probably be turned into admin offices if they did develop parts of Stamford Bridge, you know, t- to shift admin staff away from the stadium and house them there during the de- redevelopment process. But it's all ifs, buts and maybes. I mean, Earl's Court itself, that's not an easy purchase. You've got to convince boroughs, London boroughs, that, that uh, a football stadium should suddenly be plonked slap bang in the middle of their borough with its transport links, you know, the, the implications of it all and the, you know, the effects, positive and negative on local businesses. The Earl's Court Redevelopment um, Corporation have, have already sort of indicated that they want that to be housing largely. And they, they, their plans that Liam, Liam went and visited last week um, had a good look around them. And I mean, that's the plans look spectacular, but they're all geared towards social housing and housing, not towards a football stadium. So, there's a lot of different options that, that Chelsea need to consider and there are sort of loose deadlines as well because they want to get cracking on the Earl's Court site. So that's really by the end of next summer when they need to make a decision on that, We know whether they are going to just chuck a load of money at them to see whether they might just be persuaded to to consider a football stadium on that site. It's, it's, it is fascinating. Stadium stuff is always fascinating. I'm with Lucy though and I'm not, I don't have the Chelsea affinity that, that, that Lucy has going back generations, but I just cannot get my head around the prospect of Chelsea playing anywhere other than Stamford Bridge. And that makes me old school. That makes me probably dated and old and and a bit of an old fogey, but I just can't see Chelsea playing anywhere other than their spiritual home. All right. You've convinced me. Let's do a stand-by-stand rebuild of Stamford <laughs> Bridge in that case. Uh, the Athletic is the best place to keep up with this kind of thing, of course. And now is the best time to sign up if you're not currently a subscriber because you can get it for a pound a month for just 12 months. If you're going to do that, go to theathletic.com slash Chelsea pod to do it if you'd be so kind because that helps us. We can then take it to our board and say, look, people are signing up through the link for our podcast. Please keep us going. So that would be greatly appreciated. All right, it's not just stadium stuff that's been in the news, Chelsea-wise, for the last fortnight. Lots of rampant speculation as to what's going to happen and with these charges against Chelsea. Or as Sharpie puts it, who's tweeted us, yeah, if you guys could explain in plain English why Chelsea will be relegated, considering it's been the topic of the week from every media outlet. Okay, Dom, go for it. Well, we don't know that Chelsea are going to get relegated for a start. <laughs> let's, let's start with that. I mean, there isn't even a charge on Chelsea at the moment that should be stressed. It's an investigation that is underway. Um, But that investigation might have been going on for some time and may well be going on for a lot longer. Um, This all stems from documents seen by The Guardian, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, um, which basically lists and shows a, a series of payments worth you know, tens of, of millions of pounds made by Roman Abramovich-owned companies to entities linked to deals that appear to benefit Chelsea, all of which would be deemed as illegal and sort of bypassing financial fair play, but all a bit underhand, effectively, if indeed these are proved to have happened. And we have to note that, although we've written on this subject, we have not seen these documents these documents have only uh, been shown to to those three outlets so far, um, but we know that there's a we know that there's a there's an investigation open. Um, we also know that that Chelsea Chelsea's new ownership reported self reported concerns that they had when they purchased the club 
and they looked at um, the records, looked at the books, and they basically told UEFA to start off with that they they saw incomplete financial information in the in the documents that they they'd inherited between 2012 and 2019, which you know potential breaches of FFP and indeed Chelsea agreed to pay 8.6 million pounds settlement uh, with UEFA. Um, and they've been quite shrewd about this as well, incidentally, Bowley Clear Lake Capital. Um, in the, when they completed the takeover, they sort of kept, they withheld £100 million from the final purchase price due to concerns that they could inherit these unforeseen liabilities, which is very, very shrewd. Whether £100 million is going to prove to be enough if all these claims come to fruition is another matter. But anyway, that's where we're at. Um, they proactively reported these to UEFA, to the FA and the Premier League, and we now wait to see what happens next. I think it's become more of a an issue in these last few weeks on the back, or the last week, on the back of what's happened to Everton. And there we have a Premier League club that has now had 10 points deducted by the Premier League and independent commission set up by the Premier League for overspending on basically for financial fair play breaches. So we're in this in this context, this atmosphere of okay, a Premier League club has now been sanctioned. A Premier League club has now had had points de- deducted, and for one breach, going by what the commission found, it was a, a breach of I think nineteen point five million pounds over the one hundred and five million pounds permitted losses over a three year period. So that's one one breach, and that was ten points. Now I suppose everybody's sort of seen. Chelsea with potentially quite a few offences here listed in those documents and and they've jumped to their own conclusions as to what the the sanctions might be. But I think we have to treat these as completely different cases, completely different situations, completely different scenarios and see how long it takes the Premier League, the FA to investigate fully and what the implications of that would be. And for me, there's a couple, I mean, you know, I'm not bright enough to really understand this, but there seems to be a couple of clear differences between Chelsea and Everton. One being that Everton kept getting close to this limit and the Premier League kept saying to them, you need to be careful here, you're getting close to this limit. And they just you know, did it anyway and overspent. So they'd had fair warning. And secondly, those people are still in charge of Everton now, whereas might there be some leniency toward the fact that this is a different Chelsea now and the people who, if there was anything going on that shouldn't have gone on, that wasn't sanctioned by the people who currently own the club? Does that matter? Presumably they'll get some leniency for reporting it themselves in the same way that Everton did. I think the the latter point will be taken into account. I'd be surprised if it wasn't. I mean, they could have just sat there and, and hoped that it was never discovered. So yeah, I think that I think in the way that UEFA did, and I think UEFA even commended Chelsea for for self-reporting, and and it still warranted a fine. But at least they'd got off, you know, and and actually made this clear that this is what they discovered when they took over. On the other point, I'm not sure that 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 will come into it. And just look at what Chelsea won over the period that that, that might be covered here. We're talking Premier League titles. We're talking Champions League titles, Europa League titles. I don't think that that the change in ownership in that respect will will have much of an impact because you know we started this conversation this podcast today talking about how Stamford Bridge isn't fit for purpose because Chelsea are an elite club and that should be playing in a sixty thousand seat stadium. 
why are they an elite club capable of doing that? Well, really because of the successes of the Abramovich era. And if those Abramovich era's successes were all came with an asterisk, all came with a black mark against them, because these if these charges are proved, effectively Chelsea are still living off off the success that they enjoyed in that period. Um, so I suspect that they, the powers that be would still come down pretty hard on even on the new ownership. But look, we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves on this. This could take years if it if it comes to anything at all. It, it might, it could take absolutely years. Some of these charges might go back all the way back to sort of the, the mid noughties already. I mean, two thousand six, two thousand seven, the early, relatively early days of the Abramovich ownership. So I don't think we should. Um, be all doom and gloom and, and and assume that anything is likely to happen soon. This will be investigated painstakingly for some some time to come before any conclusions are, are reached by the powers that be. I think I'm right in saying that that our understanding is, is, is Chelsea are relatively relaxed about the situation at the moment. Um, this is all a bit of conjecture. I think that I think there are all these things that, have, that, that the documents have have apparently shown up. I think other stuff basically that Chelsea have self-reported to the authorities so uh, i think the general mood around the place is we'll be okay on this and um, we've done everything we can and you know we inherited some problems but we've we've made them made it public we've we've made it clear to the powers that be that you know what we think must have happened um and hopefully they they are treated uh kindly as a result all right we'll tune into straight out cobham in november 2032 then and we'll bring you a complete rundown of what happened uh, with those. It's about time we got back to some actual football though, isn't it? We'll preview the trip to Tyneside next. Now, right, a month ago, you might have felt the sense of trepidation bleeding through your speakers slash earbuds, listener, but much has changed in the worlds of Chelsea and Newcastle United ahead of Saturday's meeting. Now that we're recording on Friday, I can read you this direct quote from Eddie Howe, re Newcastle's decimated squad. Sounds like it has improved a bit. Fabian Cher was more precautionary rather than any injury. We saw him yesterday. He seemed good. Almiron's worked really well since his hamstring. Kieran Trippi is fine. He's trained with us since his return from England. We'll check on Sean Longstaff tomorrow. Uh, Lewis Hall obviously can't play in this game under the terms of his loan from Chelsea. Lots of other players who are also out. Burn, Botman, Target, Murphy, Harvey Barnes, Tenali. So it is a Newcastle team that is depleted. What do you think, Lucy? Are you confident as uh, Chelsea head up? to the northeast tomorrow i have definitely been drinking the kool-aid and after the man city 4-4 and witnessing us batter tottenham kind of um i'm really excited which is really scary newcastle away is one of my favorite trips ever i wish i was going but i'm at work but yeah i i'm kind of optimistic um i feel like a corner has definitely been turned and after being kind of so doom and gloom and worrying about the injuries and feeling like we couldn't score any goals etc 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 it does kind of feel like things are maybe coming together so yeah i know they're not as injury decimated as they were as you've just told us but i think maybe catching them cold off the international break and Kunku maybe being back, how that will fit in will be interesting. But I feel like, yeah, with Cole Palmer, anything is possible. <laughs> I love him. Everyone loves him. And I am backing him to carry on his amazing form. Nicholas Jackson's just had a baby. He's going to be inspired to also score. It's going to be fine. 
Olds to Newcastle. Uh, it is a great away day and you can just about make out some of the players from the top of the away stand up at St. James's Park as well. Uh, Dom, everybody's got Nkunku on the mind. At CFC AEAE says, how do you find gentlemen, brackets and Lucy, close brackets, anticipate Nkunku fits into this squad? Feels as though Poch finally found a good balance, especially in midfield. Akayo Mbokwa also wants to know if Nkunku will feature against Newcastle. He's going to be on the bench rather than starting if he's involved at all. But it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because you feel like maybe that the place he can slot in easiest is actually through the middle as a striker, but that's not his preferred position. So where do you want to bring him in? Exactly. And, and Liam's written a very good piece that went out on uh, Friday morning about where Christopher Nkunku should fit into this um, Chelsea team once he's fit and firing. And I completely agree with you. I don't think he'll be in the starting lineup anytime soon. He needs to be broken back into this team gently. Moreover, we have we can't forget that he's never played in the Premier League yet. This is his first taste of Premier League football. And okay, he was there were some really promising performances on the preseason tour, but this is a very different kettle of fish uh, playing competitive Premier League action. Um, so I, I suspect that he'll he'll be drip fed into the team. But when he was playing in, in pre-season, as, as Liam points out, I mean, he he did do very well through the middle. He also did very well off the left. And indeed, Chelsea's entire approach, really, was sort of built around getting the best out of him in one of, of those roles. Um, and really, his absence with, with the knee injury completely flummoxed Pochettino initially and and really jettisoned all his all the plans that he'd, he'd he'd carefully laid out over the summer he had to try lots of different things and 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 shift the entire balance of the team we saw you know Colwell coming in at, at left back and where Chilwell had been having the license up and down that flank and it had been almost James who had been sitting back as the third centre half and Chelsea a lot of Chelsea's play coming up the left when when Nkunku and and Chilwell were in the side and 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 now it's almost shifted to the other side where you know he's been asking his right back to bomb forward, and 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 Colwell has been sitting in and into that three, and and shifting the whole sort of balance of the team, almost mirroring what he wanted to do initially. Moreover, you know after struggling so much with the attacking play, Chelsea have now struck upon a formula that's working. They're scoring four goals every week, and that's with with Cole Palmer coming in off the right largely, with Raheem Sterling off the left and doing so well in that role, and. Where where does he fit? Where will he fit and conquer in without disrupting that rhythm that has been built up over the last few weeks? Um, so it's a it's a dilemma. But look, it's it's a dilemma that he'd rather have than than having Nkuku unavailable. I, I imagine he comes in and he'll he'll play through the middle for a bit and, and try and get into the rhythm there. We can give um, Nicholas Jackson a, a bit of a breather in matches. He's also got. Armando Breger, who can also play more of a part as a number nine now, which is great. And Pochettino will have options. And really, that's what he's wanted up front all season. He's he's finally got them. And it's it's going to be intriguing to see where Nkunku fits in. wonder if, Lucy, we might see Breuer start this game because Jackson was away on international duty, wasn't he? And as well, he, he had a baby, whereas Breuer has uh, been back at base. He didn't go away with Albania, would that be a change you would make? And how, what are your feelings on like Enzo Fernandez and Caicedo who've been all over the world? Do you stick them straight back in and say, here you go? Or do you tinker with that midfield three that's been so good with uh, with Conor Gallagher as well? Um, uh, I think keep keep the settled lineup if you can that played against Manchester City just because 
they looked really good. I know defensively there were some certainly issues. I did enjoy seeing Broya when he was against Fulham and obviously got that goal and it really felt like he was now going to be able to kick on and then obviously had the injury setback. So I think maybe they will be super uber cautious with him as they were with Reese James, maybe because there's no point in throwing him straight back in and then he has a recurrence of that injury that's kind of plagued him of late. So again, one of those that could maybe come on and make an impact and you would, you'd back him against the physicality of Newcastle's defenders, I suppose, to maybe offer something a bit different if Jackson's kind of running in behind them and then Broya could be that physical man up against them later in the game. But yeah, I think Potch joked with journalists, didn't he, that he'd get killed if he didn't play Enzo and Caicedo. So I think he'll probably have that attitude again. But obviously that um, Enzo was involved in that crazy game against Brazil. So maybe emotions will be running quite high for him and what mindset he'll be in after that. Because I know a lot of the players have kind of spoken out about what a scary and dangerous situation that was. So that might be something for, for Poch to keep a check on. But you back him as manager to kind of judge that situation correctly and, and make the right call. Yeah, he played 70 minutes of that game at the American Caicedo played the full 90 in both Ecuador's World Cup qualifiers against Venezuela and Chile. Uh, Ersin wants to know, given that Chelsea tend to struggle in the December period, how many points do you see them picking up in their eight league games from now until the end of the year? Well, let's take out Newcastle. Well, let's include Newcastle. Why not? I'm saying that's a draw. Then you've got Brighton at home, Man United away, Everton away, Sheffield United home, Wolves away, Palace at home. And looting away. They're interesting fixtures, those, Dom, aren't they? Because Brighton's always a tricky game, but maybe not this season. Man United away, who knows? Everton away, Chelsea always lose that. They'll beat Sheffield United at home. Wolves has been a tricky place to go. You can tell us all about Palace and looting away, who knows? So it's quite a difficult one to predict, I think. It is, because I think what we've learned from the last few games is that, that, that against a, a team that, that comes on to Chelsea, Chelsea will pose a, a threat. Some of those matches coming up, not Newcastle and not not Brighton particularly, but certainly Everton, possibly even Sheffield United and Wolves and and maybe Palace, those teams will sit low as a low block and and, and try and stifle things and make it difficult for for Chelsea's attacking players and then and try and hit on the counter. Now some of those will be better at it than others, but that is the next challenge. Um, Chelsea have proved a lot in the last two games what their their capabilities are as attacking force. I know I know Spurs was was a a wild and wonderful occasion and, and exceptional circumstances. And probably of the two games, I know that was the one they won, but the the City game is will be what where we've seen the real promise of this of this Chelsea team as an attacking force sort of laid bare before our eyes. So but they have to do that against a team that's going to try and clog things up and try and make it difficult for them defensively and, and not not have all the emphasis on the attack all the time. Uh, and this run of games will test that. Of those, yeah, Brighton Brighton are struggling in the Premier League. They've only, they haven't won in the Premier League since September. And they, their European exploits have been good and winning, beating Ajax was, was fantastic, but they're, they're not the same force in the Premier League. Manchester United, wildly unpredictable. I mean that could be dour. I mean, they, they, anything could happen there. Everton are a really difficult team to play against at the moment, as you say. Chelsea have got a pretty poor record at at uh, Goodison Park, and everything about Everton is going to be a frenzy from now on. I mean, the atmosphere at their home games until they are back safely in mid-table is going to be wild. So that will be really, really difficult. Sheffield United, Palace at home. I mean, they always beat Palace, unfortunately, but you know those those will be wins. 
Wolves away. Wolves are playing really well under Gary O'Neill. So, yeah, a test, a real test. Um, Luton, Luton is so exceptional that you you just don't know what will happen. They should win it, but that's not like any other Premier League fixture these Premier League players will ever play. So that that's uh, it's it's a great run, and it's great that it's so breathless as well. It's just like it's a bit like the old days, isn't it, when Chelsea were in Europe and they're playing every three days. Right, Lucy, as we go into the weekend, Chelsea are 10th, uh, 10 points behind fourth place Spurs, nine behind Villa if we're saying it's top five rather than top four. I'm going to grant you one win against Newcastle over the next few weeks. It can either be on Saturday in the Premier League or it can be next month in the League Cup quarterfinal. Which one are you taking? I will draw at St James's Park and win the Cup game would okay. be my answer. That sounds reasonable. All right, whatever happens on Saturday on Timeside, we will, of course, break it down on our Monday pod. Plenty of action involving the women's team since last we spoke. They picked up their first win in this season's Champions League on Thursday night. They beat Paris FC 4-1 at Stamford Bridge. Captain for the night, Sam Kerr got a hat-trick. Sophie Ingle added a late fourth. Paris had briefly levelled. Uh, Sam Kerr saying she's back to full fitness. It certainly looked that way. Our friend Jesse's match piece on The Athletic focused on Kerr. You can read that now. Athletic.com slash Chelsea pod. The place to go to sign up for a pound a month. Uh, Lucy, you watched this game. Tell us more about it. Was it all Sam Kerr? Yeah, Sam Kerr was pretty amazing. And actually, her manager contradicted her because Emma Hay said she was only at 80% and how scary that was because there was still more to come. I mean, the goals were unbelievable. The pass from Lauren James, if you haven't seen it for the first one, was just a thing of absolute beauty. And as you just go, (gasps) I watched it like five times back on YouTube as well, just to be like, yeah, she really did mean that. And then Sam Kerr was speaking afterwards and she was like, yeah, I saw the assist she gave Agabiva Jones on Saturday. I thought, well, she can pass that ball. So I'll just be there and I'll I'll put it in. So that was all completely like premeditated, which makes it even better. And then the third, obviously, the to have the foresight to lob the keeper who was just scrambling back the poor woman and didn't have a chance was a beautiful uh, thing to see as well. So, yeah, they looked very good. Not very good in the first half, but they really turned it on in the second for sure. And then obviously the other result in the group with Hacken surprisingly beating Real Madrid kind of really opened it up for Chelsea now. So it was pretty much the perfect night for them. Kirby getting back to her best. She looked really good as well in the second half, linking up with Kerr. Yeah, all really good signs. I um, was very enthused, to say the least. Excellent. Uh, well, those results mean Chelsea second in Group D. Hacken have got six points from two games. Chelsea four, Madrid one. And Paris, who knocked out Arsenal and Wolfsburg in qualifying, have got a big fat zero. Chelsea host Hacken on match day three. That's the 14th of December. Um, Dom, it's interesting that this game was played at Stamford Bridge. The, the Liverpool game in the league was as well. And there was lots of chatter about the fact the attendance was around 13,000. I think it was about 5,000 for the Paris game, wasn't it? Because they didn't open every section of the ground. But if people are wondering why they'd stage it at Stamford Bridge and not Kings Meadow, the answer right lies in the intricacies of UEFA and then basically taking over your stadium, making a whole host of demands about what you've got to do with it. And those demands are much easier to meet at Stamford Bridge than they are at Kings Meadow in terms of media access and you know what's got to be done where, when and wherever. And you've got to use the right branded UEFA water and all this kind of nonsense. It's just something which practically, I guess, is much easier to do at Stamford Bridge, even if you don't open every stand. Absolutely. And stuff like that, people are blissfully unaware of, aren't they? I mean, it's, I think Brighton have had a bit of a 
a shock this season, you know, welcoming European football for the first time to the Amex Stadium and, and all the demands that UEFA placed on the, on them. And similarities, I mean, this is not something that will ever worry Chelsea, but when a team is promoted to the Premier League, you, you know, all the talk around it is, oh, he's £150 million, it's £200 million jackpot you've struck now as a, as a new Premier League club. Actually, that money takes a while to filter into your system. And initially, you have to fork out an awful lot of money on things like... HD coverage of football for television cameras to use and and gantries have to be in media facilities and all, all that all that kind of stuff it costs millions and millions of pounds for newly promoted clubs and they have to do that the, the immediately the moment they get promoted so i mean we saw it with with Luton in the summer i remember you know years back going back 10 years when, when palace got promoted back to the premier league after a long time the immediate costs are like Wow, where are we finding this money from? And then, obviously, then the the media money filters in, and you are you do actually hit the jackpot properly. But yeah, that all comes into it, and it would explain why Chelsea are playing their their women's uh, UEFA Champions League games at Stamford Bridge. And also, the reason that they only open one stand is if you open every stand and you can't, you know, cap the attendance, then you have to close all the roads around the stadium. You have to get a certain amount of police and stewarding as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's um, that's why it might look a little bit odd, but that's why that happens. Uh, this weekend, Chelsea are back at Kings Meadow. They're taking on Leicester City in the WSL. They're three points clear of Arsenal at the top of the league with a much better goal difference as well. Lucy, you'd expect Chelsea to beat Leicester, but they're a much different prospect to what they were last season. It's probably not going to be 6-0 or 8-0 this time. But yeah, three points would be most welcome and, and most expected. Yeah, they they have been a lot better under Willie Kirk this year. And obviously they got the, I suppose, morale-boosting penalty victory over Manchester City in midweek in the Conti Cup, which is a bit of a scalp. I know it's the Conti Cup, but they were 2-0 up, managed to throw that away, but then did win on penalties. So they probably will be quite G'd up. They, they drew with Tottenham in the WSL last week, but then they obviously collapsed against Arsenal the week before and just had the most horror second half ever. The defending was shambolic. So Chelsea should basically be watching that game and try and replicate what Arsenal were able to do. And yeah, if, if Sam Kerr, if Aggie Beaver-Jones, if Lauren James are in the mood, then you would certainly back them to, to get three points here. Yeah, they tend to kind of blow themselves up after half time, Leicester, if they put too much into it in the in the first half. Anyway, we'll see about that. Uh, elsewhere, Charlotte Harper reporting on the Athletic that Emma Hayes is undecided whether she'll go over to watch the USA during next month's international break. At the moment, she's saying she's focused on Chelsea. It's going to be interesting to see if that shifts as the season moves along. Uh, go to the Athletic now to check out that piece if you so desire. Elsewhere in Chelsea news, the under-21s don't have a competitive game until next week. They do have a friendly against Strasbourg on Tuesday, uh, though. I'll be talking you through that one on the Chelsea app if you want to watch it. And the under-18s host Blackburn this weekend. Right, we're going to do a quiz next. Oh. <laughs> Keep that noise in. <laughs> <laughs> So I did write a quiz and I put it on the doc that Lucy and I share. So I've had to scrap half the questions and um, quickly come up with three more. Surely you've scrapped all the questions, Matt, because when I get them wrong, she's just going <laughs> to... <laughs> I only remember one answer, which was Tito Livramento, and I don't remember what the question was. Okay, so just have to uh, if, if I keep If I keep out. saying Tino Livramento, <laughs> 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 
All right, let's just change Dom's question too. Luckily, I've got a spare one. Uh, Dom, here's your first question. I sort of tried to make it Newcastle Chelsea related, but it's not really. I mean, your questions kind of are, but maybe not. Uh, a mere 93 miles from St. James's Park is Scarborough. Chelsea played Scarborough in the FA Cup in January 2004. Who made their Chelsea debut? One of only three appearances for the Blues that they would make. What? Um... There's no chance of a steal here, don't worry. <laughs> so that was under Ranieri in, in sorry, January 2004. Um, yes. Fourth round. John Terry scored the only goal of the game. Yeah, I remember. I did actually know it was 1 0, weirdly. Um, who made their Chelsea debut? One of only. Uh, it'll be someone ridiculous like. All those, all those guys that we always fall back on, they've all long gone by 2004. Uh, I have. Uh, I've got absolutely no idea. No idea. Sorry. Can you give the initials? Oh, yeah. Can I have the initials as well? <laughs> All right. A-N. Would I know who they are? No. No. Okay. I'm not even going to bother. <laughs> so hold Don't on. So, so this is ahead of of Chelsea, Newcastle, and you've gone 93 <laughs> miles away from Newcastle is Scarborough. Yeah, it's pretty close. I've got no idea, sorry. A-N, no, no chance. No, Lucy, no you've got no idea either? No. Okay, no. this is someone who I'd never heard of. Alexis Nicholas. He played mm. three games in total for Chelsea, two in the Premier League. Basically, there's a Twitter account called at Premier League Players, uh, which is absolutely fantastic. You should definitely follow it, listener. And they are tweeting out every player who's ever played in the Premier League. Wow. So when this one came up, my eyes lit up and I thought, I am going to crowbar this into a quiz somehow. Dom's not going to be able to get it right. Yeah, but there's crowbarring and there's crowbarring. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Still, I'm pleased with that. And yeah, follow Premier League players. It's, it's really good if you're nerdy like me. Right, Lucy, here's your first question. Sophie Ingle became the record appearance maker in the WSL when she featured against Liverpool last weekend. How many games has she played in the competition? I'll give you a margin of oh. five either side. I know that she overtook Terrace Harrett. Yeah, no points for that. I think it's 187. You're within the margin oh. to get the points. It was actually well, 184. Oh. That's a pretty good guess. Very good. Okay, I've just rapidly inserted this second question because it was going to be who was Chelsea's Academy Player of the Year in Tia 2020. <laughs> uh, it is now against whom did Lewis Hall make his Chelsea debut? Um... Oh, no, is that? Oh, not in the JPT, like first team football league trophy. Sorry, Bristol Street Motors trophy, <laughs> whatever it's called. But not Premier League. Anything, anything. Played the full ninety in this game. He he played a load of games against um, Manchester City, but I'm think I'm getting confused with. Um, I think I'm getting confused with Simon's excellent article on. Um, Amari Hutchinson. Um, I, I will say Manchester City because I don't know the answer. You steal it, Lucy? I was going to say Liverpool. You're both wrong. It was Chesterfield in the Football <laughs> Association's <laughs> Challenge Cup. Oh, I do remember that. Yeah. Fair enough. 2022. Yeah. Remains the only game Marcus Bettinelli has ever played for Chelsea. I do believe, he said. Spoiling a quiz question. <laughs> Another week. Uh, here's your second, Lucy. This is tough, to be honest. 
and it might take a long time to get through it. So England went crashing out of the under-17 World Cup this week after they were beaten by the might of Uzbekistan. Name either any of the six Chelsea players who were in the squad or all of the five then Chelsea players who featured in the 2017 Under-17 World Cup final win, masterminded by the greatest manager on earth, Steve Cooper. Well, I don't know any of the current ones because... You know the one that plays for hashtag? You talk about them all and I just let you talk about them <laughs> and don't talk about them myself. Um, You've got to get all of the class of 2017 Well, that's then. like Tammy and... Nope. Oh, Hudson Adoy nope. and Tamori and Nope. Hudson Adoy is one. Solanke. Solanke. Hold on. Wait a minute. This is randomly <laughs> flinging names at <laughs> Which one was right? Uh Hudson Adoy. I'm not gonna get them all, there's no point. Um, um You're after everybody who played in the final. Every, everybody Everybody who played in the final in twenty seventeen. Four started, one came off the bench. Uh <laughs> I'm going to give you four more guesses. Oh, I don't, I, you don't need to. Um... One's playing in the Premier League. One's playing, I think, in the Champ. One's playing in League Two. Another one's playing in the Premier League. It's not Rhys James, no. Two of them were in the England squad for this break. Oh, and not Levi. No, Levi's too young. Mark uh, Gay. Mark uh, Gay's in it. He's Palace. Yeah, he's one. <laughs> Um, I think we're going to have to abandon this, aren't we? Because you ain't going to get it. No. Uh, Dom, do you know any of Anything? the rest of 2017? So we've got Gehi and Hudson Ladoy. McEachran. Uh, first name. Oh, oh come off it. Him and I thought Josh. Oh, I was going to say him and I thought I was too far. George. It's George, yeah. Oh, no. Josh McEachran's about 30. <laughs> <laughs> a long time ago. George McEachran, currently of Swindon Town, alongside uh, fellow Cobham graduate Tarek Awakwe, who is not one of the answers. So how many more do we need? You need two more. We've got Gahi McEachran and Hudson Adoy. Connor Gallagher. Yeah, for mm. God's sake. I mean, he's actually the Chelsea captain most of the time. Yeah. Conor Gallagher is one. The other one, you're probably not going to get. He's played in the Championship playoff finals in each of the last two seasons. One of them, he made a monumental mistake and was saved by VAR. The other one, he came on for a few seconds. Did he play for Forest? Yep. Played for Monaco as well for a bit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. What's the, the centre-half? The play, uh, What's he called? Um Played for Coventry last uh, season. Don't know where he is now. Maybe Cardiff. He got, did he get released by Forest last summer? He's not released by Forest. He's on loan, I think. But he got released okay. by Chelsea. I'm sure it began with P, but I can't remember his name. Darbo. No. No, it's not no. Fancy Darbo. He's at Forest Green. Uh, this guy's also had a loan at Circle of Bruges, and he played for Dijon, but he couldn't cut the mustard for more than a season. So he came back to England now he's at Cardiff City but sadly he's only made a couple of appearances for that one appearance in the league as a sub and 190 in the cup so it's not going brilliantly for him um it does begin with P though doesn't it certainly does yeah yeah um... you still there listener nearly done <laughs> uh, what's his name his name's Jonathan Panzo and nobody Panzo, gets not Panzo. Yeah, Panzo. Well <laughs> okay, so it's 1-0. Sorry, this. everybody. Um, Dom, here's your final question. Who was named on the Chelsea bench for just the second time in his career when the Blues visited Newcastle last season? 
Amari Hutchinson? Is absolutely correct. <laughs> I wrote that when I thought Simon was going to be on the pod. So that means that, Lucy, you've got to get this right. Otherwise, I'm going to have to scramble and write my own <laughs> tiebreak. <laughs> How many Instagram followers? <laughs> Chelsea beat Leicester 8-0 and 6-0 in the two WSL meetings last season. Across those two games, how many goals did Samantha Kerr score? It's either going to be a lot or it's going to be none. Um... I don't know. Uh... Who's that person who always complains about the quiz? Yeah, they're having a field day now. There's a <laughs> bit of justification. Four. Dom, you can steal it. Three. Oh, we're going to the tiebreaker. <laughs> it was it? one. Uh... He scored one goal. Okay, so here's the tiebreaker. In the one, two, three, four, five... Five meetings between Chelsea FCW and Leicester City's women's team. What is the aggregate score? Closest wins. Um, actually, you can both WhatsApp me, please, because I don't want anyone going one over or under on this. Um, so five meetings. I can tell you that Chelsea have won all five of them. What's the aggregate score? And you just said eight and six last season. Yep. Right, I've got Lucy's answer. On, you, on my WhatsApp there. I mean, you could just tell me yours if you like. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll say uh, 21 nil. All right, I'm going to give the victory here to Lucy, partly because she's a reluctant quiz participant. And I think she's just about closest, albeit she said 26-2. The actual answer is 32-0. Oh, my word. So 6-0 and 8-0 last season, 9-0 and 7-0, and a 2-0 as well. So, yeah, some real thumpings in there altogether. But 32-0, the aggregate score. Um, Lucy, you'll have to do the quiz every week. You, you, you want to know. No, I think that's a draw. You're just being kind to me. I definitely <laughs> don't deserve that. Lucy. Never again. In, you definitely Never deserve again. that. <laughs> Never again. <laughs> we'll see you next week for straight out. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a big boost for Luke and Liam and Simon, that's for sure, because um that was not great, frankly. But what is great is the content that's up on the athletic at the moment. I don't know about you, Don, but I enjoy Greg Evans' piece on the most popular player to get on the back of a shirt for each club. Um Lucy bonus quiz question. Who do you think it is for Chelsea? Men? Oh, I was surprised. Oh, um, not Lukaku, <laughs> like me. Um, maybe I was going to say Gallagher. It's not a bad shout. It is a Cobham kid, Dom. You know this, I guess, because you probably subbed the piece. Well, I, I didn't actually, and I, I would be, uh, I would be guessing. So, um, for put me out of my misery. I've done enough quizzes for today. It is Reese James. Uh, yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? I think sense. that probably I say no to the tweet of Reese James to Arsenal, who says no, probably helped shift a couple more shirts with James 24 on the back. I don't know if they still do it by letter because I thought it would have been Enzo 5. If so, <laughs> I'm still paying for my Bart Williams 6 Forest shirt from 1998. <laughs> Pay 50p for the hyphen. Unbelievable. Um, anyway, Dom, what else should we be looking out for on The Athletic? Uh, it's worth having a, a read of Danny Taylor's piece with Pascal Chimbonda at Skelmersdale. People will remember 
Chimbonda from his time in the Premier League at Spurs and, and Wigan, and he's now managing um, Skelmersdale up in the northwest. There is also a, an intriguing piece by Nick Miller about Iron Maidens Football Club, which is uh, strange, um, worth a read. Um, and Adam Leventhal has written on footballers and their entourages, which is, again, a good read through. Excellent. Remember, athletic.com slash Chelsea pod, the place to go to sign up. If you're not currently a subscriber, it'll only cost you a pound a month for 12 months. You'd be doing us a favour as well. You can do that by leaving us a nice review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast or helps other Chelsea supporters find us. Uh, we'll be back, hopefully, with a fully fit squad on Monday and hopefully to reflect on a glorious victory at St. James's Park featuring a Christopher Nkunku hat-trick. Join us for that if you can. Until then, from all of us, it's goodbye. The Athletic. <laughs>